And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studio right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country. Well, this is July 7th, 288th day of the year. 177 days remaining till the year's over with. 1124, City of Terror falls to the Venetian Crusade after a siege of 19 weeks. 1456, a retrial verdict acquits Joan of Arc of Heresy 25 years after her alleged execution. There is a story that, in fact, she was uh, smuggled out of the country and uh, someone else took her place on the when she was burned at the stake. She came back a number of years later and a lot of people recognized her. 1520, Spanish conquistadors defeat a larger Aztec army at the Battle of Otumba. 1534, Jacques Cartier makes his first contact with Aboriginal people who is now Canada. 1575, the Raid of the Reddish Wires, the last major battle between England and Scotland. And in 1585, the Treaty of Nemours abolishes tolerance to Protestants in France. 1667, uh, English fleet completes the destruction of a French merchant fleet off Fort St. Pierre, Martinique, during the Second Anglo-Dutch War. 1770, the Battle of Larga between the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire takes place. 1777, American forces retreating from Fort Ticonderoga are defeated at the Battle of Habartin. And we're not having a good week. 1798, as a result of the XYZ affair, the Congress rescinds the Treaty of Alliance with France, sparking the, what's known as the Quasi-War. Now, the Quasi-War was an undeclared naval war, fought from 1798 to 1800 between the U.S. and the French French Republic, primarily in the Caribbean and off the East Coast. And in 1793, Congress suspended repayment of French loans incurred during the American Revolution. This dispute escalated further due to different interpretations of the 1778 Treaties of Alliance and Commerce between the two countries. The uh, France, which was engaged in the War of the First Coalition, which introduced, uh, which included Great Britain, viewed the 1794 John Jay Treaty between the U.S. and Britain as incompatible with those treaties. And they retaliated by seizing American ships trading with Britain. Which was uh, a no-no. The uh, 1798 affair was a political diplomatic episode, 1797-98, in the presidency of John Adams, involving a confrontation between the U.S. and Republican France, which led to the Quasi-War. Uh, the names derived from the substitution of the letters X, Y, and Z for the names of French diplomats Jean Conrad Hottinger, Pierre Bellamy, and Lucien Hauteval, and documents released by the Adams administration. Well, as is usually the case when politicians get involved, Everything goes to hell in a handbasket.
1807, the first treaty of the Tilsit between France and Russia signed, ending hostilities between the two countries in the War of the Fourth Coalition. 1834, New York City, four nights of rioting against abolitionists began. 1846, U.S. troops occupy Monterey and Yerba Buena, beginning the U.S. conquest of California. 1863, the U.S. begins its first military draft. If you want to be exempted, it's going to cost you 300 bucks, which was a good bit of money in those days. 1865, four conquistadors, excuse me, <laughs> four conspirators in the assassination of Lincoln are hung. They may have been conquistadors. I don't think so, though. They weren't wearing armor. 1892, the Catapunan is established, the discovery of which by Spanish authorities and Initiated the Philippine Revolution. The uh, the Katapunan um, was a Philippine Revolutionary Society founded by anti-Spanish colonist uh, Filipinos in Manila in 1892. Primary goal was uh, to gain independence from Spain through a revolution. Yeah, everybody's an enthusiastic revolutionist until the first shot's fired. Then you won't find anybody. Uh, 1898. President McKinley signs the Newlands Resolution annexing Hawaii as a territory of the U.S. <laughs> Excuse me. 1907. Florence Ziegfeld Jr. staged his first follies. On the roof of the New York Theater in New York City. 1911, U.S., U.K., Japan, and Russia signed the North Pacific Fur Seal Convention in 1911, banning open water seal hunting. That's the first international treaty to address uh, wildlife preservation issues. 1915, the first battle of the Isonzo comes to an end. 's fought between the armies of, armies of Italy and Austria-Hungary on the Northeast Italian front in World War one the Italian army wanted to drive the Austrians away from its defensive positions along the Asanzo and Soka rivers and on the nearby mountains and hopefully they're going to capture the court of Trieste and although the Italians had a two to one numeric superiority their offensive failed because the Italian commander Believed frontal assaults um, was a thing to do. The Austro-Hungarians fired from uphill positions, barricaded with barbed wire, which basically resisted the Italian assaults. All right, having been an infantry officer, I can tell you from experience. Frontal assault is not the way to go. Anything but. 1915, Colombo Town Guard officer Henry Frederick is executed in British Ceylon for inciting persecution of Muslims. 1916, the New Zealand Labour Party is founded in Wellington. 1928, a day in history. Sliced bread is sold for the first time on the 
Inventors, 48th birthday by the Chillicothe Baking Company of Chillicothe, Missouri. When I was, I don't know, eight or nine, ten, back in the old days, I was 30 pounds under what was supposed to be the average weight for my age. The doctor gave my mother a prescription for a loaf of colonial bread. And I was to be set on the front porch until I ate the entire loaf of bread. And that way, I'd start to put on the weight that I needed to have. And don't get me wrong, I like colonial bread. A lot of uh, interesting uh, prescriptions were bandied about in those days. Uh, my grandmother had a homemade remedy that I truly loved. I had a, uh, what they thought was pneumonia, and I couldn't stop coughing. So, every time I coughed, she gave me a spoonful of a mixture of Jack Daniels and sugar. By the end of the day, I was laying on the floor and couldn't get up. I was drunk out of my mind, and my father accused her of turning me into an alcoholic. Didn't help my pneumonia, but I'd cough just to see what would happen. 1930, industrialist Henry Kaiser begins construction of Boulder Dam, which is now known as Hoover Dam. Nineteen been there. Interesting place. 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident provides the Imperial Japanese Army with a pretext for starting the Second Sino-Japanese War. That was China versus Japan, don't you know? Also in 37, the Peel Commission report recommends the partition of Palestine, which was the first formal recommendation for a partition in the history of Palestine. 1941, U.S. occupation of Iceland replaces the U.K.'s occupation. One of the largest deep freezes in the world. 1944, World War II. Largest Banzai charge in the Pacific War at the Battle of Saipan. The Banzai charge was um, basically a suicide charge. With everybody screaming Banzai. 1946, another Francesca Cabrini becomes the first American to be canonized. Also in 46, Howard Hughes nearly dies when its XF-11 reconnaissance aircraft prototype crashes into a Beverly Hills neighborhood. 1952, the ocean liner, SS United States, passes Bishop Rock on her maiden voyage, breaking the transatlantic speed record to become the fastest passenger ship in the world. 1953, Ernesto Che Guevara sets out on a trip through Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. He was eventually shot. I think it was supposed to be in Bolivia. Um, when I was in South America, the story I heard was it was actually a uh, Green Beret sniper that got him. 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower signs the Alaska Statehood Act into law. 1959, Venus occults the star Regulus. 
This uh, rare event used to determine the diameter of Venus and the structure of the Venusian atmosphere. 1962, Alitalia Flight 771 crashes in uh, Junar uh, Maharashtra, India, killing 94 people. 1963, Buddhist crisis. Police commanded by Yod Din Nu, brother and chief political advisor to South Vietnamese President uh, Noko Din Dien, attack a group of American journalists who were coming, covering a protest. 1978, the Solomon Islands becomes independent from the UK. 1980, institution of Sharia law in Iran. Also in 1980, during the Lebanese Civil War, 83 Tiger militants are killed during what will be known as the Safra Massacre. The, um, also known as the Day of the Long Knives. Occurred in the coastal town of Safra, which is north of Beirut. During the Lebanese Civil War, as part of Bashir Gamal's efforts to consolidate all the Christian fighters under his leadership in the Lebanese forces, the Phalangist launched a surprise attack on the Tigers, a 500-man militia that was the armed force of the National Liberation Party. Former Lebanese President Camille uh, Shamoun attack was supposed to be uh, conducted at about four in the morning in order to spare the life of Camille's son and commander of the Tigers. Uh, Danny Shamoon, the attack was postponed to 10 to make sure that Danny had not left Fakra. Roughly 83 um, of the militia were killed. 1981, President Reagan nominates Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female member of the Supreme Court of the U.S. I met her after she stepped down to take care of her husband. Not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer, let me tell you. Very nice. 1985, Boris Becker becomes the youngest male player to ever to win Wimbledon at age 17. 1991, Yugoslav Wars. The Brioni Agreement ends the 10-day independence war in Slovenia during, against the rest of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. 1992, the New York Court of Appeals ruled women have the same rights as men to go topless in public. You often have to wonder about the, the New York Court of Appeals. Having lived in New York for about three years, some of the dumbest people I ever met were running things in New York. 1997, the Turkish Armed Forces withdraw from northern Iraq after assisting the Kurdistan Democratic Party in the Iraqi uh, Kurdish Civil War. 2003, NASA Opportunity Rover, MERB, or Mars Exploration Rover B, was launched into space on board a Delta II rocket. 2005, a series of four explosions occurs on London's transport system, killed 56 people, including four suicide bombers and injuring over 700 others. You know, uh... One thing about being a suicide bomber, the retirement plan sucks. 2007, the first Live Earth Benefit concerts held in 11 locations around the world. Some nice music, but it accomplished nothing. Uh, 2012, at least 172 people were killed in a flash flood in the Krasnodar Krai region of Russia. 
2013 is a Havilland Otter air taxi crashes in Sedona in Alaska. Sodatna in Alaska, killing 10 people. 2016, ex-U.S. Army soldier Michael Xavier Johnson shoots 14 policemen during an anti-police protest in downtown. Well, we had a power failure. And I think the system has come back up. I'm going to continue where I left off. <clears throat> Hopefully, everything goes according to plan. We've been talking about some of the most mysterious places in the world. And one of them is El Dorado. Legendary place of vast gold riches in North and South America. It's lured hundreds of treasure hunters, many of whom have died. The, uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries, European explorers in the New World came to believe there was a city of unbelievable wealth hidden somewhere in the Amazonian rainforest. Spanish explorers learned of the legend of El Dorado, the, the Golden Man, as he was called. When they arrived in present-day Colombia and Peru in the early 16th century, according to the story, a tribe called the Mosca uh, conducted an inauguration ceremony at Lake uh, Guadavida. That's near modern-day Bogota. Naked body, the new king was covered with resin and gold dust. The man and four chiefs, dressed in plumes, crowns, and bracelets of gold, and got on a raft filled with gold and emeralds, and when the raft got to the center of the lake, the king and his cohort threw all their riches into the waters and offering to the gods. The uh, February 1541, an expedition of 200 Spanish explorers and 4,000 Indian guides and porters went off to search for El Dorado. By the following February, half of the Spaniards and three-quarters of the natives had died from malnutrition and illness. The failed expedition in 1569 cost the lives of an estimated 1,700 Spaniards and Indians. 1595, English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh launched another search for the legendary El Dorado. Didn't find anything. Drainage projects on uh, conducted on Lake uh, Guadavita, the site of the Musca ceremony, continued until 16, uh, 1965, when the Colombian government put an end to further efforts. There's also been stories of El Dorado uh, in the American Southwest. Somewhere, many believe there is a perhaps deserted city. Well, the streets are paved with gold. Very similar to Percy Fawcett and his... No, they didn't land at Ellis Island. One popular legend from the colonial period claims that a Prince Madoc of Wales sailed to America in 1170. He led a group of about a hundred men, women and children, and they came to establish a colony. And after finding abundant land, he went back to Wales to recruit more uh, folks to come back with him and settle on a new frontier. Uh, for whatever reason, 
Vadok vanished, was never heard from again. As America was colonized, there were tales about Madoc that were renewed. Colonists claimed the explorers uh, Madoc left behind had intermarried with Indian tribes. Settlers also reported numerous encounters with uh, <coughs> descendants of these explorers. Well, speaking Indians, to be exact, who eventually settled in the Midwest or on the Great Plains. Now, no reliable evidence has ever been produced to substantiate the stories, though we're left to wonder if there was even some truth to the Madoc story. Uh, historians are certain Vikings landed in Newfoundland about 1000 AD. If they could reach the New World, why couldn't Madoc and his band of intrepid explorers? That would explain a lot. Well, let's turn from tales of Welsh-speaking Indians to uh, what are known as the Emperor's Guardians. <clears throat> In March of 1974, peasants building, digging a well in Shanghai province of northwest China made a very shocking discovery. It ultimately proved to be one of the most significant archaeological finds of the 20th century. After unearthing pieces of a clay figure, the workers notified Chinese authorities who sent in government archaeologists to examine the site. And they discovered thousands of life-sized terracotta soldiers and horses hidden in pits beneath the ground, and apparently they had been there for more than 2,000 years. Now, the pits lay about three-quarters of a mile from the tomb of Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China. In all, they discovered four massive pits containing an estimated 8,000 terracotta figures. These figures included officers, armored and unarmored infantrymen, archers, cavalrymen, chariot drivers, horses, even chariots. And several horses made entirely of bronze were also discovered. Well, amazingly, each warrior had distinctive personal features, different facial expressions, different postures, some of the figures wore goatees, others had full beards. Some even have top, knot, top knots. Um, others had braided hair. Some wore battle armor and some loose blouses. They wore long or short trousers, sport caps, even pillbox hats. And occasionally, other interesting characteristics were discovered. Now... Originally, it appears each figure was painted in bright colors, which have long since flaked off or faded. Now, Emperor Quin Shi Huang had the extraordinary army built to accompany him on his journey to the afterlife and to protect his nearby mausoleum from uh, enemy armies and grave robbers. When the 13-year-old Quin Shi Huang became ruler of the Quin tribe in 246 B.C., Rival states inside China battled each other for dominance. And this bloody civil war went on for over 200 years. But after defeating and absorbing several warring factions, Quinn modified, uh, modified and unified China. 
He established a powerful central government building roads and waterways and fortifications by standardizing weights and measures and even creating a writing and a very solid currency system. Well, shortly after he died in 2010 B.C., the empire fell into disarray and eventually another civil war. Rampaging forces set on the pits, uh, destroying many of the clay soldiers and stealing the real weapons that were with which the terracotta army was originally fitted. Today, visitors can see the remaining assemblage of these clay warriors at the Terracotta Army Museum, which is built at the site of the pits. Well, sometimes the most innocuous discoveries can lead to unbelievable returns. An unremarkable slab of thick black stone unlocked the secret to the most enduring civilization ever known to mankind, and I'm talking about the Rosetta Stone. The story began in July of 1798. French military leader Napoleon Bonaparte launched a campaign to seize control of Egypt. Well, he'd, after he had several defeats at the hands of British forces, so he instructed his army to strengthen fortifications. It was July 19, 1799. While French troops were reinforcing the defenses of Fort Julian in the port city of Rosetta in northeast Egypt, a soldier noticed a fragment of carved stone with inscriptions on one side lying in the rubble. Expedition scientists determined the stone contained writings in three different scripts. Hieroglyphics, Demotic, which was a widely used Egyptian writing, and even in Greek. So the stone was sent to Cairo to be studied further by French experts. And in the fall of 1801, the British defeated the French and took ownership of the slab and all the other artifacts uh, that had been recovered. They called them spoils of war. Now, the Rosetta Stone's a fragment of an Egyptian stella, a stone slab containing governmental or religious text. It's made of uh, grano de orte, an igneous rock, and measures 46 inches high and 30 inches wide. And it's nearly 12 inches deep. Buff to a high polish. There we go. My papers are getting out of hand here. Well, as I said, buff to a high polish, it weighs nearly three quarters of a ton. The stone held the key to unraveling the mysteries of Egyptian hieroglyphics because it repeats the same text in all three languages. When scholars translated the familiar languages of Greek and Demotic, they could be... Uh, one step closer to deciphering a hieroglyphics, the symbols that had baffled archaeologists for centuries. Well, scholars soon found themselves in a heated competition to translate the inscriptions. In 1802, British clergyman, clergyman, intellectual Stephen Weston translated the Greek inscription. That same year, the French linguist Antoine Isaac Silvestri, this sassy and Swedish Orientalist uh, Johann David Ackerbad 
interpreted the demotic writing. The text was a decree honoring the new king, Ptolemy, in 196 B.C. Well, in 1814, British scientist Thomas Young made point breaks through on the hieroglyphics, but still hadn't solved the riddle. Finally, in 1822, French linguist uh, Jean-Francois Champollion cracked the code, showing that hieroglyphics wouldn't simply picture writing, but instead a phonetic and ideographic language like most languages. Well, with the code decrypted thousands of inscriptions on tombs and temples and monuments and papyri could be deciphered, which revealed many of the ancient Egypt's uh, hidden secrets to the world. Well, among those secrets were the um, story of um, the Queen Pharaoh. Symbolic uh, artifacts belonging to Egypt's controversial female pharaoh uh, surface at a Canadian university. In February 2012, researcher Luther Sousa was sorting through the University of Winnipeg's uh, Hetherington collection of ancient Egypt Egyptian uh, artifacts, and he saw two unusual wooden objects, a 12-inch hoe and a set of miniature rockers. When he inspected them closer, he found hieroglyphics on the, the objects that spelled out the name Matkari. That was the throne name of Queen Hatshepsut, Egypt's pharaoh, who ruled from 1479 to 1458 B.C. These objects were first discovered at uh, Hatshepsut's uh, funerary temple in Dera-Rabari, about 400 miles south of Cairo in the 1880s. Now, Hatshepsut was a daring, controversial figure, described as both an effective ruler and a scheming, power-hungry politico. She initiated massive building projects, erected roadways and temples, including her own at Del Albari, with uh, pools and gardens and scores of statues of the female pharaoh. Historians note that the queen pharaoh also brought peace and prosperity to her kingdom. When Hatshepsut's tomb was discovered in 1927, archaeologists found the statues of the ruler smashed to bits. Well, it's believed by many the culprit uh, may have been Tutmose III, who was her rival for the throne. He tried to wipe her memory and name from history, didn't succeed, but he made a major effort. Well, from the mysteries of Egypt, let's go back to South America. Talk about the Nazca Lines. They're etched into the desert floor between Ingenio and Nazca River valleys in southern Peru. There are hundreds of gigantic straight lines, geometric shapes, and figures of trees and flowers and animals. The inscriptions stretch for about 37 miles and cover an area of about 200 square miles. Called the Nazca Lines for the Nazca people who inhabited the area between 1500 and 2000 years ago, the markings can be seen only from the air which calls into question how they were done. The Nazcas made the lines by scraping away the rocks that covered the desert surface to reveal the whitish grayish um, soil of sand and clay and calcite beneath. And because the desert uh, there gets less than half an inch of rain annually and the climate is nearly windless, the enormous geoglyphs 
remain unscathed by the ravages of erosion. Numerous theories have been suggested to explain the purpose of the Nazca Lines. Many researchers believe the lines were constructed for religious or ritual purposes, maybe as a means of communicating to the Nazca spirits in the sky. Some claim the figures represent constellations or serve as a type of astronomical observatory, which is the fallback uh, position of almost all ivory tower scientists. To date, the meaning of the inscriptions remains unknown. I've heard many also talk about the fact they may have been uh, signals to um, a flying race. There are many legends about uh, flying men throughout South America. Well, let's turn from the Nazca Lines to the undisturbed burial place of a prominent godlike leader from ancient Peru. He was known as the Lord of Saipan. 1987, Peruvian archaeologist Walter Alva discovered an extraordinary treasure trove of pristine tombs at Macarajada in Saipan, Peru. The tombs were left by the Moshe culture, which flourished in that region from about 100 to 800 A.D. And the most magnificent tomb belonged to the Lord of Saipan, El Senor de Saipan, a warrior priest whose mummy was adorned with ornaments of gold and silver and copper and semi-precious stones. It also raises the question of how they learned to mummify bodies. We're told by every tower scientist that uh, South America uh, was not visited by any of the older cultures. You know, guarding the Lord's sarcophagus was a skeleton of a man in a seated position wearing a helmet and holding a shield. Archaeologists have called him the guardian. His feet had been amputated, so he could never abandon his post. Six other individuals were also found, three young women, two men, and a child. These were probably the, the wives, warrior bodyguards, and child of the powerful and wealthy Lord of Saipan. There was a third tomb found filled with golden treasures, and it contained the body of a man related to the Lord, a, a woman, and another guardian. And all 14 tombs have been found in that area. And the dazzling riches found at the site are permanently displayed at the Museo Tumbas Reales de Sipan in uh, Membeque in Peru. It'd be interesting to know the backstory of this particular uh, tomb. Well, from Peru, let's go to the English countryside and talk about the chalk giant of Cerne Abbas. He's carved into the chalk bedrock of a hill near the village of Cerne Abbas in southern England. It's an enormous naked figure, 180 feet tall, carrying a 120-foot knob club in his right hand with his left arm outstretched. This remarkable depiction of the male human form is known as the Cerne Abbas Giant, or others known him as the Rude Man. 
first known written account of the giant appears in a letter written by local historian John Hutchins in 1751. He claimed the figure was probably cut into the hillside in the mid-17th century. Ronald Hutton suggested uh, servants of uh, both Hutchins and a 20th century British historian Ronald Hutton can't read bone writing, suggests servants of Lord Hollis, the landowner at the time, could have done the deed. However, there's no evidence to support that claim. Researchers do know the figure was made by slicing away the turf on the hill to expose the white chalk underneath. Some people believe the giants, the Greek-Roman demigod Hercules, who's often depicted naked, carrying a club and an animal skin. There was a Hercules cult, perhaps in the local Celtic tribe in Roman-controlled Britain in the second century. They may have created the uh, the figure. Others suggest uh, certainly a giant was a pagan symbol of fertility. 2008, ground penetration technology revealed the figure at one time held an animal skin in his left hand, maybe suggesting uh, that it supported the Hercules theory or that the figure was a depiction of a, a hunter. You know, to combat the other effects of erosion and weathering, volunteers periodically excavate the existing chalk outline of the figure to greater depths and pour in new chalk. Of course, the religious leaders, who were all raised by maiden ants, wanted his um, genitals eradicated. It was sending a bad message to the children, don't you know? Well, let's go to Teotihuacan. Khan. Talk about the pyramids. This Mesoamerican metropolis has yielded a uh, few clues about the one magnificent once magnificent culture that built this city. Teotihuacan, the largest, most influential Mesoamerican city of Pre-Columbian times, has left ruins in its wake, but very little is known about its inhabitants. It's located on a 7,500-foot-high plateau in central Mexico, about 25 miles northeast of Mexico City. It covers an area of about nine square miles. Two enormous pyramids and a large, wide avenue dominate the site. Origins of Teotihuacan are for the most part lost to history, as is the identity of the people that actually built the city. Archaeologists estimate the city was established about 100 B.C., centuries before the arrival of the Aztecs to the region, with ongoing construction continuing until roughly 250 A.D. The Aztecs named the place Teotihuacan, which means the place of those who have the road of the gods in their neighborhood. Uh, Nahatal language. There's a road on the north-south axis uh, named the Avenue of the Dead. It runs for more than two miles. And along its course are the Maceo de Della, the Citadel, a royal residential complex that includes the six-tiered temple of Quetzalcoatl, decorated with carvings of the fire serpent and the feathered serpent. Um, about 200 victims of human sacrifices have been found at the temple. Well, drought brought the city's descent to uh, you know, anonymity it enjoys today, with the final blow coming about 700 A.D. when the 
city was sacked and burned by invaders from the north. So whoever this civilization may have been, it was one of the ancient New World's most glorious civilizations before it also joined several others in being lost in the annals of time. Well, let's talk about the New Grange Passage Graves. Now, there are megalithic carvings in Europe, in this area, but they don't reveal much about their history. The dwelling on the Borne is a complex of various prehistoric monuments on a hill overlooking River Borne in County Meath, which is slightly north of Dublin. The dwelling contains more than 35 passage graves, tombs covered with an amount of earth or stone reached through a narrow passageway of stone. The forest of the, the finest of the tombs is Newgrange, which was estimated to be built about 5,200 years ago. Many modern scholars believe the prehistoric buildings of Newgrange uh, erected the monument not only as a burial place for the dead, but also, more significantly, as an astronomical calendar. Once again, the fallback position of almost all our retired scientists. Every year around December 21st, the rays of the rising sun enter a narrow opening above the, the mound's entrance to light up that long passageway and illuminate the furthest points of the chamber. This occurrence, the winter solstice, marks the shortest day of the year. Well, let's go to Peru's Pisco Valley for our next story. It's known as the Band of Holes. There are thousands of orderly man-made holes that run up a mountainside. 2014, Charles Stanish, an expert in archaeology at the University of California in Los Angeles, got a call from a man in Pittsburgh asking what he thought about the strange series of ground pits in Peru's Pisco Valley, commonly called the Band of Holes. Well, Stanish wasn't aware of the site, although it was only 10 miles from the site he'd excavated in Chincha Valley. He checked it out with Google Earth and saw satellite imagery of thousands of small artificial cavities running up and down the side of a mountain. Organized a team to investigate the bizarre anomaly and took off for South America. In 2015, Stanish and colleague Henry Tantelion set out for Mount Sierpa, the mountain on which the, the depressions appeared. Quick survey revealed the holes were about three feet wide and 20 to 40 inches deep into the soil. Many of the holes were surrounded by uh, small rocks on the surface. The uphill road of holes stretched for about a mile. Aerial images taken by a drone revealed between 5,000 and 6,000 holes divided into groupings. Some had diagonal rows of holes and others had regular perpendicular rows. One grouping was hourglass-shaped. The team also found pottery dating to the 16th century uh, Inca occupation of the region. Now, Stanish wasn't the first scientist to discover these unusual arrays. In 1933, geographer Robert Shippey 
published an aerial photo of the Band of Holes in National Geographic. Other archaeologists surveyed the area, one claiming the holes were unused graves. Another suggesting the Incas used the holes for storage. Neither theory made a whole lot of sense, except to other ivory tower scientists. So why did the Incas expend such great effort digging holes in the ground? What purpose did the holes serve? Now, Stanish believes he's got the answer. Mount Nisarp is about four miles from Tambo, Colorado, a large Incan administrative center. The holes appear on a road leading directly to Tambo, Colorado. Stanish believes the holes were used to measure produce such as beans or squash as tribute or taxes paid to the Incan state. Citizens would fill the holes with foodstuff under the watchful live stone of state accountants who recorded the amounts placed in the holes, which is also, in my humble opinion, a completely idiotic theory. You know, modern innovation is foreshadowed by thousands of years with a lot of the uh, ancient technology that has come to light. Many centuries ago, intelligent, creative people developed engineering marvels and technological innovations that leave us wonderstruck to this day. Some ancient technology was assigned to oblivion, lost forever. Other advances were reinvented hundreds or even thousands of years later. Now, the world's first known seismometer was invented in 132 A.D. by Chinese astronomer Zhang Hing. The device was a large bronze vase-like vessel about six feet in diameter. Eight ornately crafted dragons were positioned on the outside of the vessel, each with a small bronze ball in its mouth. The dragons denoted compass directions. Eight bronze toads sat atop the base of the seismometer. Mouth and gate directly aligned with the dragons. When the instrument sensed incoming ground movement, one of the balls would drop from the dragon's mouth. And the sound of the ball falling into the mouth of the toad indicated which direction the uh, earthquake was coming. Then we've got the Antikythera mechanism. Found in 1900 by divers, it was a mysterious mechanical object that they found while it was exploring the remains of an ancient shipwreck off the Greek island of Antikythera. This heavily encrusted metallic device, which dates to the early 3rd century B.C., consists of 30 bronze gear wheels covered with Greek inscriptions. Now, the full function of the mechanism is yet to be determined. All righty. The... Um Okay, we're back. Had to take a call on the hotline. Well, we're talking about the mysterious mechanical device found on the shipwreck at, at the Terra Island. A lot of researchers believe it was used to calculate the position of celestial bodies and predict solar and lunar eclipses. And It's kept in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. I've heard it described as the world's first computer. Let's talk about the Lysurgis Cup, a 1,600-year-old Roman glass depicting a scene featuring King uh, Lysurgis of Thrace. No, I'm sorry, Thrace. 
Scientists were originally baffled by the way the chalice changes colors depending on the direction from which it's lit. When lit from the front, the chalice appears jade green. Light it from behind, it's deep red. In 1990, British researchers discovered the glass of the chalice contains tiny tin flecks of gold and silver. You know, the effect of light on the metallic particles produces the unusual color-changing property. Scientists use the same technique today to create holograms made of nanoparticles of silver used in uh, digital optical devices. So that raises the question, did the ancients use holograms? Maybe they did. Well, let's talk about the main penny. It's a thousand-year-old Norse, Norse coin found at a prehistoric archaeological site in New England. question becomes, how did it get there? It's August 18, 1957. Amateur archaeologist Guy Malgren was excavating the Goddard Archaeological Site in, on the central Maine coast. Now, this is a large prehistoric Native American settlement at Penobscot Bay from which thousands of artifacts have been collected. A few weeks into the dig, Melgren found a small silver coin buried in the ground. And this coin was identified as a 12th century British penny. Maybe brought to Maine by a 17th century English colonist. In 1974, donated along with 30,000 other items discovered at Goddard to the Maine State Museum. Well, clearly, historians were intrigued by the centuries-old artifact. 1978 experts from London examined the coin and declared it was probably Norse. Kilhorn Ascari of the University of Oslo declared the coin of Norse origin and estimated it had been struck between 1065 and 1080 and circulated until the 13th century. Time of the coin's circulation, the years the Goddard site was occupied and the period in which Norse Vikings inhabited Greenland and possibly traveled widely in North America, all overlap. It's been suggested that the penny's discovery on the main coast indicates the Vikings had ventured beyond Greenland. Maybe they brought the coin to, to Maine. But if the Vikings didn't mention a visit Maine, was the coin traded with native people living around Greenland and then traveled further and further south on subsequent native trades? Well, the main penny, as it's known, is an example of an object called an out-of-place, or an OOP artifact, also known as an OOP. These artifacts that shouldn't exist, either because the technology needed to produce them didn't exist at the time of their presumed creation, or because uh, they defy accepted scientific knowledge, such as the Wilder Hill belief the Vikings did not visit places south of Greenland. Well, you have to keep in mind that ivory tower scientists do not have all the answers by any means. Well, let's talk about um, the Dorchester pot, which is another oop. A seemingly contemporary object is released from rock hundreds of millions of years old. June 7, 1852, an article appeared in Scientific American. It described the discovery of a metal vase-like object embedded in 15 feet of solid sedimentary rock. Uncovered in two pieces after an explosion was used to break up uh, pudding stone rock at um, 
Meeting House Heirloom, Dorchester, Massachusetts. Vessel was four and a half inches high, six and a half inches in diameter at the base, and two and a half inches in diameter at the top. Vase was made of zinc, handsomely decorated with a floor pattern and inlaid with pure silver. So how did the so-called Dorchester pot get there? Ancient alien theorists claim the out-of-place artifact has to be as old as the rock itself, which is estimated by geologists to have formed between 570 and 593 million years ago. You have to ask yourself, were metal, metal workers applying their trade in North America nearly 600 million years ago? Mainstream observers, though, say the, the vase was actually a Victorian-era candlestick. Still doesn't explain how it got in the rock. Mystery's never been fully resolved, nor is future research likely to ever resolve the enigma. The Dorchester pot and the papers relating to its study went missing without a trace long ago, which is another thing that I retire scientists do when something is out of place. It vanishes. The basements of museums around the world are filled of oops, for which there is no explanation. On that note, we come to the end of today's show and this week's show. So we'll be back with more Tales of Bizarreness next week. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.